Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Ori Brofman and Rod Beckstrom, names you may not recognize, but they co-wrote a book 15 years ago that remains as prescient and as engaging today as it was when they first wrote it and when it first hit the bestsellers list. It's called The Starfish and the Spider. It's a book where the authors compare two models for structuring maybe one's institution or organization. There are starfish and there are spiders. They have similar shapes, but that's where their closeness ends. For example, if you cut off a spider's head, it dies. If you cut off a starfish's leg, because it doesn't have a head, it grows a new one. And the severed leg can grow into an entirely new starfish. So similarities in shape are as close as the two species get. They are radically different. Brofman and Beckstrom show that organizations that are decentralized, that are flexible, that are regenerative and independent, that are simple, yet driven by a strong ethic, are far better equipped to survive and thrive in these transitional chaotic times. Brofman and Beckstrom use familiar examples to show the effectiveness of starfish organizations, Alcoholics Anonymous, Toyota, Wikipedia, and others. These companies erupted rapidly, driven by simple ideas. They were massively disruptive to the status quo. And the authors say, it's a starfish world, but the spiders haven't figured that out yet. There's an example in the book that I have used and cited in my own writings that's never left my imagination. And it's about what happens when a starfish becomes a spider. When a group goes from being independent and free and elastic to being dependent and controlled and structured. It's not about a modern business. It's about the native Apache tribe of what is now the southwestern United States. The Spanish never defeated the Apache. Nor did the Mexicans who followed. And at first... Americans fared no better. For hundreds of years, the Apache maintained their independence against all colonizers, and they threatened Americans, America's manifest destiny right up to the 20th century. They were adaptable, they were decentralized, they were as fluid as the wind across their deserts. The Apache were starfish who would not yield until the American government gave the Apaches Cows. And it nearly killed them. The buffalo population had been hunted to extinction. 
Before then, dependence upon cows would have been unthinkable. But now the tribal chiefs, rather than employing their people to work together to sustain their unique way of life, those chiefs became gatekeepers. It was each chief of each clan who received the cows from the U.S. government. And then that chief determined how many of the animals each person should get. So using this new sign and source of wealth, Cows became a form of reward and punishment. Those who were loyal to the chief and his policies and did what he wanted them to do, they got more heifers than the person who refused to do what the chief wanted them to do. So on and so forth. So greed entered into a society where it had never really existed before. To be an Apache no longer meant being a part of the land or being a part of creation or being a partner with your other tribe members. It meant hustling for a few cows. And this became the final coup de grace after so much resistance that broke Apache society. Now this story confirms a basic truth about life. Your life, my life. Be careful what you trust to bring you security. Because it just might bring you enslavement. Be careful what you trust to bring you security. It just might bring enslavement. And in the end, that's far more concerning than if you are a spider or a starfish. If you put your confidence in the wrong place, cast that confidence onto the wrong people. Become reliant upon the wrong apparatus, say cows, for example. Then life can become a great trying maneuver in anxiety, worry, and loss instead of peace and satisfaction. One of my heroes, Clarence Jordan, founder of Koinonia Farms, and the inspiration behind Miller, Millard and Linda Fuller when they founded Habitat for Humanity and my own inspiration for the Rusty Goat. He said this, We are nourished by the system to which we have committed ourselves. And if we have committed ourselves to something that cannot bear the weight of that commitment, we will never have a moment of inner peace. I'm in the midst of This series of talks about simplicity, simplifying your life for the purpose of a higher purpose, simple living in order to truly live. And last week I spoke about simple faith, simplifying your spirituality, and today I want to talk about our spending, about our money, about our materialism, about our stuff. Simplify your stuff. And we come to this challenging couple of paragraphs from the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus were preaching this sermon today about our treasures here on earth and what we eat and drink and what we wear and being enslaved to money, I imagine His point would be the same. But imagine His words if He spoke to us today. What if He said something like this? In this globalized, multi-layered geopolitical economy of ours. 
Don't store up your treasures in the commodities market. In offshore accounts. In questionable hedge funds or in dodgy cryptocurrency startups where inflation will erode them away. Where market volatility can destroy them. Where people like Bernie Madoff or Sam Bankman-Fried can embezzle them. Bank of America can mismanage them. Or Lehman Brothers can lose them. Rather, treasure the eternal things of God. Those things that are not endangered by corporate layoffs. Those things that the empire or a pandemic cannot destroy. And those things that cannot be subjected to repossession or bank foreclosure. It is impossible to walk in opposite directions at the same time. So stop trying to serve both God and your financial security. Whew, that lands on the ears a little bit different, doesn't it? Nothing I say today is to be taken as financial planning. It's a litigious world, you know. Oh, my preacher said. (laughs) Nothing I say today is about giving up your money to hand it over to the church. Or writing a check to me so that God will give it back to you a hundred times over. God is not running a Ponzi scheme. And the foolishness of the prosperity gospel is nothing more than an American invention of creating a spirituality that will sanction and prop up our greedy little hearts. If someone tells you that you will be blessed if you give, they are right. Giving from a cheerful heart just expands your entire being. It is good for you. But if someone tells you to give, and to give to them in particular, because it means God will bless you, and that God will make a larger, more sizable deposit into your own savings account, you can be, count, you can be sure that that person is not selling you anything. That person is coming for your money. Now that I've got that off my chest, I will continue. Now why would I take up this subject of possessions and materialism, money, After last week when I spoke about spirituality, it would seem that these two subjects are a thousand miles apart and moving in opposite directions still, but not so. Materialism, particularly in North America, materialism is as real as any monotheistic religion in the world today. My friend David Gushy calls the American condition affluenza. Our materialism, our commercialism, our consumerism drive us to get the latest and the greatest with no thought for the least of these. No thought for how we might use our resources to serve others. No thought as to what it does to our souls. No thought to what it does to God's good world. I want it. I must have it. And the desire is both a rampant disease and a zealous religion. This predominant American religion has... Multi-million dollar shopping malls and online shopping carts as its places of worship. Salespersons and marketing gurus serve as its clergy. Quarterly reports, stock updates, and budget project projections are the daily devotional readings. And possessions is the God. We long and we pray for the advent of a Messiah who will one day come and save us and our money. Bearing the banner of a 50% off sale, coupons and discounts for all, and no interest payments until next year. 
This is the good tidings of great joy for which we now all trust and hope. We have put our faith in economics to save us. Is it any wonder that we live in one of the most anxious times anyone can ever recall? Because this economic system cannot bear the weight of your peace of mind or your happiness. Are you hearing me? Jordan was right. You trust the systems. If you're nourished by the systems of the world, you never find a minute of peace. No peace will come to us so long as we are sustained by and nourished by the Financial Times, the Dow Jones, and the Federal Reserve. Now, money itself is not wicked. If you're raised poor, I was raised poor, and we were sometimes thought, you know, oh, there's somebody with money, I wonder how they stole it. Because poor people can think like that. It's true. Anybody raised poor, you're raised suspicious of money. Money in itself, though, isn't wicked. It isn't bad. There's an old song by Lightning Hopkins, another old uh, black bluesman from East Texas. Look at this here. It's a sin to be rich, but it's a doggone shame to be poor. I love this song. He must have been reading the Proverbs. Because there is a proverb that says this. Dear Lord, do not give me too much wealth or my pride will make me forget you. But Lord, don't give me too little. Because I might steal and bring shame to your name. Lord, give me just enough. What a great prayer that is. See, money isn't evil. The Bible never says that. Rather, it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Wealth isn't inherently harmful. It's just dangerous. Money of itself isn't obscene, but what someone does with their money can be obscene. And what one allows wealth to do with their souls can be obscene. I probably shouldn't quote Will Willimon here, But this is what made him quip that having wealth and being a follower of Jesus is very possible, but it's also a lot like two porcupines making love. Proceed oh so carefully. The trick as Jesus saw it, the challenge is not to allow money to become your God. You don't need more cows if those cows make you dependent. You don't need a bigger house, that more luxurious automobile, that next possession on the list of things to obtain, if those things are going to draw you into anxiety. You don't need all of those investments and take all of that financial risk if doing so only creates sleepless nights and ulcers and heart palpitations. It is better to have less and quietly trust God than to have more and never have a quiet mind or a trusting moment. That's the simplification I'm talking about. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Here's a painting that I I am amazed with. It's by Englishman George Frederick Watts, painted in 1885, and it visually captures Matthew 6.24 in a way that is uncanny, in a way that only art can sometimes serve us. The New Living Translation 
Matthew 6.24, which I read earlier, says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. In the last sentence, that translation makes an excellent choice of words when it uses the word enslaved. The oldest English translations use the word serve. Serve isn't strong enough. It is dolos in the Greek to be in bondage, to be in chains, to be subjected, to be deprived of freedom. So enslavement is the best word choice. But money in that same verse is not the best choice. The archaic word mammon with a capital M is the better translation. Now in the Jewish mind, mammon originally referred to possessions or money that you put into trust. So here I've got this money, this inheritance. I'm going to take it to the bankers and I'm going to put it in trust. They referred to that as mammon. But over time, mammon came to mean not what was put into trust, but what a person put their trust in. Big difference. And so for the Jewish rabbis, mammon became a competing God. And so we come to Watts in the 1800s. He paints this hideous picture, this false idol, and it is perfect. This sort of demonic troll, something from the underworld, a glutton grotesquely seated on his throne, nursing his money bags and crushing the poor souls beneath his weight. If you would serve God well, if you would follow Jesus sincerely and live a true life of freedom, you will do so without the enslavement of this ugly, false God known as mammon. This is not a shame-inducing strategy by Jesus to make us feel bad about our decisions. It is simply the God's honest truth. The less you have to worry about, the more free you become. And don't we all want that? Isn't there enough other things to worry about in the world? If what you own now owns you, maybe it's time that some of that stuff went up for sale. If the wealth you are pursuing is taking all of your energy and all of your precious time, it's taking you away from your family or your partner, and yes, you can justify it by saying, I'm just trying to make a living, or I'm just trying to leave something behind for those that will come after me. But if it is robbing you of actually living, it may be time to make a change. If the effort to hold on to or to keep up all that you spent your lifetime accumulating is now weighing on your mind and robbing you of sleep and stealing what little energy and what few handful of years you have left, then my friend, it is time to simplify, simplify, simplify. You won, okay? You won. You got that second home. You are an investment genius. You beat the odds by sheer will or dumb luck. Congratulations! Now can you let some of it go and relax? Because I don't know if you notice that even when you win in this world, they don't hand out medals. They just want you to keep playing. Do you remember this guy right here? 
name is Chesley. Chesley Sullenberger III, known by his friends and his family and since 2009 simply as Sully. He was the pilot of the U.S. Airways Flight 1549, January 15, 2009, taking off from LaGuardia. Both engines of his Airbus A320 sucked in a flock of Canadian geese, and the plane was powerless over the New York skyline. He opted for a daring water landing, executed it perfectly. All 155 passengers and crew survived without a single major injury. All the survivors, including Sully himself and his co-pilot, tell a similar tale. And this is how quickly life can change. Everything was normal. And in 90 seconds, it was all in the toilet. (laughs) Experts say that when an airline crashes, or when an airline crash is about to take place, there are survivors on board. Those survivors normally have about 90 seconds to escape. Those on flight 1549 must have been paying attention to that pre-flight safety briefing that we all ignore, that we've heard a million times. Those same experts reveal that evacuation, what, what cripples an evacuation when a plane crashes, someone will stop, reach into the overhead bend, and try to retrieve a bag. Suitcases can hold some of your most important valuables. Your electronics are almost indispensable now. But do you want to die for them? Do you? No. You get up and you run off that plane. And I'm sort of saying the same thing today. And some of you are feeling this. You are saying to yourself... I have let all my stuff, I've let my finances, I've let my dependence upon this economic system, just all of it, I've let it swamp me. I've let it worry me. And I constantly have this feeling that I'm about to crash and I might be sinking. I've got to let it go, I've got to simplify. And if that's you today, this is my last word to you. There are multiple life-giving exits from the craft on which you have been traveling. Locate the exit closest to you. And remember, that exit just might be behind you. Your cabin has experienced sudden pressure loss, and that unlikely event of an emergency landing and evacuation is even now taking place. Leave your carry-on items behind and follow the light which will lead you to safety.